big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin, we have some new patrons to thank. So shout out to Ivor, Gigi, Elizabeth, Lexington, and Patricia. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to our notes, outtakes, bonus episodes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash podandprejudice. Or if becoming a patron isn't your thing, but you still want to show your support of the show, check out our merch store. We've got t-shirts, mugs, pillows, masks, and more. The link for that is in the episode description. And now enjoy this week's episode covering chapters 20 to 22 of Sense and Sensibility. I don't want to give anything away to you, but I was like really excited for you to read these chapters. And I just explained like the plot of the book as it goes on to Mike. And he was like, Jane Austen wrote that? (laughs) Right? That's how I feel right now. I feel like... First of all, I was so my mom and I were listening to the episode that just came out, which is the chapters prior to this. And I was listening back and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. She was dropping all these hints and Jane Austen just she just she said, I oh, my God, I'm flustered. And (laughs) listeners, I know I get flustered a lot, but this is like like Mike said, this does not feel like a quote Jane Austen novel because all of my wild musings that I've been doing over the past eight episodes, it seemed wild even to me. Some of the things that I was saying and I was like, this is just fun. Like I want to fantasize about like the absolute wildest thing that could happen in this book. And it hath, it hath happened. It hath come upon us. Oh, yes. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here to talk about Jane Austen indeed. Oh my God, who knew we were talking about Jane Austen? (laughs) Not me. This is a soap opera. This book is so good. So just to give some new listeners a little context. Yes, hello, welcome. I, Becca, have read read a lot of Jane Austen work. And I clearly have read none. That's not true. You have read Pride and Prejudice. I have read Pride and Prejudice. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice for the first time with me, you can go back and listen to season one, but that's not what we're doing here today. No, listeners, today we are talking about chapters 20 through 22 of Sense and Sensibility, the end of volume the first, and what a bang we go out with. (laughs) Oh, yes. First of all, we met like four new people in these chapters. And so I was all like, oh, like, I know everybody in this book, which was a lie. Again. (laughs) Yes, again. Here's the thing. Listening back to our old episodes, like, you are so smooth. Becca does not give anything away, but she does guide my thoughts. You kept saying, I know that we're going to get there, but you kept saying, like, 
Eddie's being kind of distant and like distracted. And I was like, yeah, what's up with that? But like, really? (laughs) Oh, man. Do we have a lot to discuss here? We do. We should probably just jump right into it. Oh, yes. I think that's uh, that's very much what we got to do right now. I'm really excited. Uh, Listeners, I think this is really where Sense and Sensibility comes alive as a book. But we'll just get into the plot because some of you who don't read the books maybe are like, what are they talking about? What are we talking about? Yeah, let's tell you. Okay. It's really, I'm riding a high of Jane Austen. I read these last night before bed and I went into my mom's room after I finished reading these chapters, just like my mouth hanging open and like a big grin on my face. And she was like, what? And I was like, mom, I was right about something. I predicted this you in did. our last episode. You did. And let me tell you, I have had so many moments where in this podcasting experience with you where I have not said something when I've wanted to say something. I have never had a harder time keeping my face neutral than when you predicted that it was somebody else's hair. Because it was so off. Like, it was so flippant. It, it was, was an like, offhanded comment. I was just like, I don't know, maybe it's someone else's hair. And like, he's, I don't even, it was like, so spot on. And so random that I was right. So listeners, if you don't know what we're talking about, we'll get there. And I will exactly quote myself. Let, let's just, let's get to the plot. All right. <laughs> so. Eleanor and Marianne go to Barton Park and Mrs. Palmer immediately runs up to them and she's like, I'm so excited that you're here. She tells them that she was really surprised to be coming to Barton. She said that one day Mr. Palmer just came into her room and was like, let's go to Barton. My question is why? This feels important because she is the daughter. She is the daughter. So why was he like, he hates them all. So why did he want to go to Barton? Like what called him there? There has to be something. I don't know what it is, but I'm paying attention and that feels wrong. So she then is like, ha he's so droll. He never tells me anything. Then she invites them to come to London and offers them a place to stay and they decline. This is the first time they decline. Yes. <laughs> then Mr. Palmer comes in and he starts complaining about the weather and he complains about Sir John and he says Sir John is as stupid as the weather. And then Sir John enters in the next sentence. It was a, the most words that I've heard Mr. Palmer speak and also a little bit too harsh. Oh, Mr. Palmer is a dick. He's an asshole. He's so mean all the time. But here's the thing. I love Mr. Palmer the way I love Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Yeah. I think he's so funny. He is really funny. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but well, you know what? We'll, we'll get there. But Mr. and Mrs. Palmer are very reminiscent of another couple in the Jane Austen canon. Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Yeah. We talked about that in the last episode. Yes, indeed. She's really explicit about it in this part. She is. There was a line. Well, we'll get there. So John comes in and he is like, Marianne, I know that you didn't go to Alanum today. And then she gets all embarrassed. And then Mrs. Palmer is like, oh, we all know. Like, you don't have to be embarrassed. We all know about Willoughby, which is absurd the gossip levels oh my god imagine meeting someone new and then being like huh your crush and you're like 
oh my god and then they're like don't worry i know everything and it's because mr sir john told them like he thought that would make them better friends it's very weird yes i i gotta hand it to the middletons and the plumbers for bringing a good amount of comic relief to this section yes because they are a ridiculous family they are absolutely absurd then Mrs. Palmer starts talking about how pretty Willoughby's house is, and Mr. Palmer says it's the most vile house he's ever seen. And I just kind of, I wonder, like, how did they end up together? Like, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, I do see the love there. I know that some people would disagree with me, but here, they just, he hates her, and I don't understand how he ended up there. So I actually think this is a really good example of what separates some couples in Jane Austen from others in terms of like the archetypes and the actual characters underneath because there's a really good line about this relationship if I can find it. His temper might perhaps be a little soured by finding, like many others of his sex, that through some unaccountable bias in favor of beauty, he was the husband of a very silly woman. But she knew this kind of blunder was too common for any sensible man to be lastingly hurt by it. I underlined that hair flip. Yeah, you did. That's that's a very important line. I think it tells you uh, why they're together and why they're like this. Because she's hot. Yeah, the same thing that brought Mr. and Mrs. Bennett together, which is she was young and hot and he wanted her and he regrets it. Bennett's! I wrote Bennett's next to this line, listeners. I'm getting good at this. Yes, you are. Oh, God, I love... <laughs> you know what it is also? is like you walked into Pride and Prejudice with no context. Mm-hmm. Now you're walking in with all this context and you can put these pieces together in the world. Yes. So then Mrs. Palmer says, oh, you know, maybe I'm thinking of a different house. And in this chapter or in this set of chapters, a few things popped out at me that this book is like about that we've talked about before, but that Jane Austen's really trying to bring to light. And one of them is taste and like people's taste in things. And these two clearly have very different tastes. And Mrs. Palmer thinks that one thing is nice and Mr. Palmer thinks that another thing is nice. So that's interesting. And that's something that we've talked about a lot. Yeah. And I also think there is a sense that taste in this time and now as well, but really in this time was something that was also objective, not just subjective Mm -hmm. and someone could have taste and a lack of taste and I also think that people's proclivities for certain things are definitely big in this book there's a lot of emphasis on the arts and literature with a lot of these characters but I think that there is also an undercurrent of objectively what is tasteful Mm -hmm. and what is not tasteful yes and I think you you're picking up on Mrs. Palmer being afraid a little bit to be caught on distasteful Yes. But also, I I mean, also, she's just one of those people who's kind of determined to be happy because she's in this heinous marriage. I underlined a line that said that, and I'll read it later. Then John mentions another family that he would have invited to dinner, and Lady Middleton says that they had just dined there. That would be improper, not tasteful, etc. And they're having this little conversation about that. Mr. Palmer says that Mrs. Jennings is very ill-bred because she's like oh we don't care about such ceremony and he's like well you're very ill-bred and then mrs palmer says to mr palmer did you know you are quite rude then mrs jennings jokes that she has the upper hand over him anyway because he can't give charlotte back to her now that's mrs palmer's name charlotte and mrs palmer thinks this is hilarious and she whispers to eleanor mr palmer is so droll i am waiting for this woman to crack 
I am so excited. I know it's gonna happen. She's just like, ha ha ha, everything's great. She's on fire and everything is so good. Have you watched Avatar The Last Airbender? I mean, I've not seen it all the way through, but I've seen, you know, enough. So some of our listeners are gonna pick up on this reference, but there is no war in Ba Sing Se. I don't think I got that far. Basically, they get to Ba Sing Se, which is this one last holdout major city in the war against the Fire Nation. And they come with the warning that the Fire Nation is coming. And like they find out that the entire city of Ba Sing Se is being controlled by this weird, corrupt, authoritarian government. Oh. And they're like being shown around the city by this creepy woman who smiles all the time and goes... There is no war in Passing Say. I vaguely remember this from watching it when it was on TV before Netflix, TBT. That also sounds a lot like the city in A Wrinkle in Time where all the kids come out and are bouncing their basketballs mm-hmm. and they're like, everything's great. Yeah. Or, or everything is awesome. Everything is cool. When you're I'm not paying for that song. No. Uh- um, but yes, that is very much the vibe of her and I'm really ready for her to just break. So waiting for that. Oh, one of her, one of the things that Eleanor thinks about her, I wrote it down, was what we were just saying. It was impossible for anyone to be more thoroughly good natured or more determined to be happy than Mrs. Palmer. And I think that wording just shows that she is not, she is deeply not happy. So excited for that. I really like her. And I think I'm going to stick with, uh, Helena Bonham Carter as her. Okay. Yeah. So Eleanor is kind of thinking about Mr. Palmer and kind of judging him. And this brings up another thing that I think this book is about, which is character. Like, what's your true character and what's the kind of persona that you want to present to the world? We talked about that a little bit in the last episode with Edward. (laughs) (laughs) And now here she's noting that she thinks that he wants to put on this persona of being better than everyone and in doing so pushes everyone away, but that he's not really as uppity as he seems. Mm-mm. Eleanor's like a cute little couch psychiatrist. Yeah, she thinks she's got a really good judge of character, doesn't she? Yep. I think that she's going to be wrong about some people. Hmm. Anyway, let's keep going. Okay. So then Mrs. Palmer invites them again, the Dashwoods, to stay with them at Christmas time. And she turns to Mr. Palmer and she's like, wouldn't that be great? And he's like, oh, yes, that's the only reason I came here was to invite them at Christmas time. Which, one, he sucks, but he's funny. Two, they decline again, which at this point is getting rude. Yes. (laughs) And it goes on. Then she keeps begging them and she's like, oh, it's going to be so fun. Mr. Palmer is canvassing. I guess he's a politician. And we meet so many people all the time. But, quote, poor fellow, it is very fatiguing for him, for he is forced to make everybody like him. And then it said Eleanor could hardly keep her countenance as she assented to the hardship of such an obligation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nobody likes Mr. Palmer. Yeah, he's such a jerk. Yeah. Then she asks Eleanor if she likes Mr. Palmer. And she's like, yeah, sure. And then she tells him, She tells her that he likes her and her sister very much. And this whole section had the vibe of her being like, my boyfriend and I saw you across the bar, which I know they're like cousins. No, no. Well, they're not really. Well, they're cousins to no by marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Very distant cousins to John Middleton. And 
Charlotte's related to Lady Middleton. Right. So it's all kosh. So it's all kosher. Got a proposition for a thruple here. Yeah, that's what I was getting. But uh, I know that's not the case, but it just had that vibe. Yes. Regency thrupling. Regency thrupling. A regency unicorn. Is that what it's called? Am I using that terminology right? Wait, is a thruple called a unicorn? No, but like on Tinder, sometimes um, women will post like, no, I'm not your, like I'm bi, but I'm not your unicorn because like they don't want a couple to approach them about a threesome a unicorn is a slang for a bisexual woman who sleeps with a couple i was right um anyway that's the vibe that i was getting but i know that it's wrong okay so (laughs) (laughs) then eleanor decides to change the subject when she again invites her over and eleanor says no she changes the subject by asking if the palmers know willoughby and mrs palmer's like yes we know him very well and then she says but i've never talked to him before uh i just see him around a lot and he's in the opposition to mr palmer in their political thing that they've got going on which i don't know if that's important then she says she's excited that marianne is gonna get married to him and be their neighbor (laughs) and then eleanor is like that's not where did you get that from that's not even a thing i mean it is but it's not and then mrs palmer says colonel brandon told her which is just tragic well first of all they had me going they had me in the first bit (laughs) like i thought that she was saying that colonel brandon was like out there gossiping and but then she goes on immediately after to be like yeah i saw him and i said isn't marianne gonna marry willoughby and then he looked uncomfortable Is that not what happened? Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened, basically. Which is just, it's funny. Oh my god, poor Brandon. Poor Brandon. It is tragic. Yeah. His whole thing that he's got going on is tragedy. He's just sitting in the corner writing some poetry for Marianne, and meanwhile, like, everyone's like, so, Willoughby and Marianne, that's a couple, and he's like, yeah. Oh, I forgot that he was in love with her. (laughs) I was like, yeah, it's sad. He's like, well, I forgot that he was in love with her and not Eleanor because it just doesn't make sense to me. Okay, this is why I clarified this. I actually was explaining things to Mike because he told me he was a bit confused. He was like, Brendan and Eleanor, right? And I was like, no, no. Listen, I don't think it's that far off. Well, no, 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 no. He, he thought that, like that was in the book. Oh, I see, I see. But he hadn't listened to the episode yet where I was like, no. Oh, I see, I see, I see. And I was like, this is this is why I corrected things. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. And um, it's confusing to me, too, still moving forward, because that, yeah, that's... And she didn't know Mrs. Palmer, did she, when she brought it up to him? No, no. Brandon's very, like, close to the chest with his heart. Oh, so that's even The Middletons worse. do know. The Middletons do know, and I think that comes up later in the next chapter, but gosh, that really does break my heart a little bit now thinking about it. He looked uncomfortable because he loves her. And- yes! Oh! He's upset because he loves Marianne. Right. Oh, wow. What a sad, sad story this is. We're, we're 20 minutes in and we haven't even gotten to the juice yet. God, I know. Okay, so that happened. Then the next part made me sad and I just wrote in my notes to read it. And the reason it made me sad is because of what we were just talking about, which is that Jane Austen wrote the wrong love story here. So I'm just going to read it. Eleanor says, Mr. Brandon was very well, I hope. And then Mrs. Palmer says, oh, yes, quite well. And so full of your praises. He did nothing but say fine things of you. And my notes, I put sigh and then a little heart. And then 
I am flattered by his commendation. He seems an excellent man, and I think him uncommonly pleasing. And then my notes say, ugh. I'm really not going to give anything away. I'm going to give you a big rant about why I think Jane Austen made a right, the right call here at the very end of the book. It's fine. I trust her. Yes. Just, just trust Jane. Trust Jane here. I think it's a more interesting story. Not that way. But I get why you feel that way. Yeah. Then... Eleanor changes the subject back to Willoughby, and Mrs. Palmer says he is well-liked by everybody, even though nobody knows him very well. I noticed here, well, not here in particular, but overall, that Mrs. Palmer is a people pleaser. She just, like, whatever they want to hear, she'll say, and then she's like, oh, yeah, Marianne is so pretty, but not as pretty as you. I mean, you're both really pretty, and et cetera, et cetera. And then she goes on to say how happy she is that they're just going to be the best of friends now. Um, but Eleanor is not really listening. And then she asks if she's known Colonel Brandon Long. And Mrs. Palmer says, yes, she is sure he would have married her because Sir John and Lady Middleton wanted her to get together with him. But her mom, Mrs. Jennings, didn't think that the match was good enough for her. And Eleanor is like, did Colonel Brandon ever expressed that he wanted to marry you and Mrs. Palmer's like no we didn't know each other very well back then but I'm happier with Mr. Palmer anyway he's just my kind of man so we're one chapter in listeners Molly's just been through like the ringer yes so to clarify to recap Colonel Brandon was never gonna marry Mrs. Palmer and did we learn anything else new in that chapter We learned that Mr. Palmer really is a huge jerk. Mr. Palmer sucks. We learned that the Palmers live near Willoughby, but don't really know him that well. Mm -hmm. We learned that Brandon confirmed that Marianne and Willoughby would be an item. By looking sad about it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right. So chapter 21. The Palmers leave, but Eleanor has barely had a chance to forget that they were there when the Middletons forced two new acquaintances on her. One day, Mrs. Jennings and Sir John just come home and are like, Lady Middleton, two ladies you've never met are going to come stay with us for a little while. Poor Lady Middleton. I can picture this whole scene. This whole chapter, actually, was just pure chaos. Justice for Lady Middleton. Justice for Lady Middleton and also just pure chaos. Everyone is running around like chickens with no heads. Oh, yes. Like, what's happening? Starting with this scene, she's like, what are you doing inviting two random cousins of mine that I've never met before over to the house, blah, 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 blah. And she doesn't even know if they're going to be fashionable or tolerable because she knows she can't take John or Mrs. Jennings' word for it because they are neither fashionable nor tolerable. (laughs) And one of the quotes that I wrote down was (laughs) funny. Lady Middleton resigned herself to the idea of it with all the philosophy of a well-bred woman, contenting herself with merely giving her husband a gentle reprimand on the subject for five or six times a day. Ah, we love a passive-aggressive hoe. (laughs) Yes, I love it. So the two ladies arrive, and Lady Middleton actually loves them because they're great with children, and they're really nice to her kids. And Sir John goes to ask the Dashwoods to come, and he begs them, and he's like, Uh, They really want to meet you. They've heard you're the most beautiful woman in the world. I did want to note, he is always commenting on how pretty everybody is. I will say this. Have you ever had, like, a family friend who always comments on your looks? Yes. It's kind of like in Bridget Jones's diary when her uncle, uncle whatever, (laughs) 
is always squeezing her butt. Yep. Yeah, it's a gross vibe, but it is a vibe nonetheless. It is a vibe nonetheless. A vibe nonetheless. I like that on a t-shirt. All right. We we shouldn't be allowed to make t-shirts. I still like Jane Austen is the tits. Jane Austen is the tits. That came up in our pre-show bonus pre-record bonus episode. So if you want to hear why Jane Austen is the tits, become a patron. Yes. Yes. So the Dashwoods decline again. It's really rude at this point. Like, we were so confused when Eddie said that he wouldn't stay. Or no, when Willoughby left and said he wouldn't stay with, he wouldn't come back and visit them. You do not decline an invitation in this time period. So the number of times that the Dashwoods have declined an invitation now is getting out of control. Excessive. Yeah. To be fair, they are asked every day. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) My next note was... Everyone around them is kind of crazy. (laughs) Like, they are very much, if we're going with tropes, they're the straight man. They are. In this environment, they absolutely are the, they are the Michael Bluth to the rest of the Bluth family. I don't know the reference. Is that about the, is that the banana? Okay, you should watch Arrested Development. It's not long. And the, you should watch the original series. The, the The reboot wasn't good, but it's got great meme fodder. Okay, great. I will watch it. But they say they're going to come in a day or two. So that's settled. They go. They meet the Miss Steels. There's an older one, Anne, who is kind of plain looking. And the younger one, Lucy, is quite pretty and has a sharp eye. And Eleanor thinks they are sensible because she sees how they're kind of getting on Lady... I, I I write Lady M in my notes so I keep wanting to say Lady Macbeth not exactly but yeah (laughs) yeah um they're getting on Lady Middleton's good side by being super attentive to the kids it says quote a fond mother is the most rapacious of human beings that means excessively greedy or grasping and so she'll take any compliment she can get any compliment of her children if you're nice to her kids you get on her good side then there's a whole page describing the antics of the children um basically the children are being kind of annoying but everyone's like "Ooh, the children and then a pin in lady middleton's dress pricks the daughter and she starts screaming and everyone starts giving her attention so she starts screaming more and then lady middleton offers her some orange marmalade and takes her out of the room leaving the dashwoods and the steels alone i hate to be judgmental because i am not a mother and i fully accept that motherhood is one of the most difficult things a person can do. But you can't reward your screaming child with candy. With jam. I was like, what are you doing? Why is marmalade the thing that she wants? Oh, I don't know. But I think from this section, we're supposed to gather that the Middleton children are kind of little shits. Yes. And to be fair, if I was Lady Middleton, I would also just want them to shut up. That's why I say I'm not one to judge. I don't have children. Yeah, you know what? Good on her. Give them orange marmalade if that's the thing that'll shut them up. Give them peanut butter if it'll get their mouth to stick shut. I mean, Molly, I'm sorry, but their children are shitty. Yeah, they are. So they're gone. We have the Dashwoods and the Steels alone. And one of the Steels is like, oh, poor girl. And Marianne says, this is the usual way of heightening alarm where there is nothing to be alarmed at in reality. In my mind, Marianne, they are like two years old they're not I mean they're crying because they're babies I don't think they're like two years old necessarily they might be a little older I think Marianne is making an astute observation about them being brats okay in my mind Anna Maria the one who was crying is a small infant I thought she was like four okay I was thinking terrible twos 
But in any event, I think Marianne, I mean, Marianne's not even really in these chapters. Yeah, this is very Eleanor heavy, this part. I think she's annoyed at everyone and she's sad about Willoughby being gone. She is. So it's not about her at this point. And so she's just kind of like, it even says later that she's being such a bitch that the steels both gravitate towards Eleanor because she's the one who's nice to them. Yes. Also, Marion does not suffer fools and Eleanor is polite enough to do so. That is also true. And it says as much in this chapter in a line that I underlined. Lucy then comments on how sweet Lady Middleton is and Marion doesn't say anything because like you just said, she does not suffer fools and quote, telling lies when politeness requires it always falls to Eleanor, which is the line that I underlined that we just mentioned Mm -hmm. so Eleanor is like yeah sure and then Anne says Sir John is very charming and Eleanor says he is good humored and friendly but she says it without any eclat eclat which means brilliant display or effect (laughs) then they talk about the children and Lucy guesses that Eleanor thinks they're spoiled and Eleanor says well when I'm at Barton I don't think of tame and quiet children with abhorrence which I liked (laughs) see Eleanor's still being sassy she's still got her sassy ways then Anne starts kind of grilling Eleanor. She asks if she was sad to leave Sussex. She says there aren't enough smart bows here in the country. Like she must miss all of the smart bows. And then they talk about bows for a really long time. Listeners, bows is spelled B-A-U-X. B-E-A-U-X. B-E-A-U-X. Sorry, I was burping and <laughs> got distracted. So we are talking about boyfriends. Notably, this is um, this is slang. This is low class language. I was going to ask. The steels, sometimes in their language, they have a little bit of a dialect. Like, like yes, like we was in the blah, blah, blah. Or like, I'm not saying it ain't. Yeah. Like stuff like that. Are they like country bumpkins? Yeah. They're actually kind of low class. Wow. Janie made a very subtle effort to uh, trickle that into the dialogue. And it came through because I noticed it. I was like, this isn't how she usually writes. Yeah. It says it later, so I don't think it's giving anything away, but she makes a point of saying they're illiterate. Yes, that came through. I didn't make the connection to their level of speech, actually. Like, I I did circle certain words that I was like, this feels out of place, but I didn't actually think about, oh, they're actually... I mean, I, I knew that they were illiterate because they said. So the steels are uneducated, illiterate, and they are penniless. I'm having thoughts, but I'm not going to say them yet. So Lucy is very embarrassed by how blunt Anne is being with all of this. Like, she's like, they're going to think all you ever talk think about is men. Like, come on. Um, and Anne is like, no, I just didn't want them to be bored here where there's no bows. And then she's like, oh, what about your brother? Like, he was a beau before he was married, right? And Eleanor is like, he's... He's my brother. (laughs) And then she says, he hasn't changed at all since getting married. So if he was a beau then, he's a beau now. And then Anne says, married men can't be beaus. They have something else to do. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. This book. Eleanor determines after this conversation that she really doesn't need to have any further acquaintance with the Steels. Anne is vulgar and silly and Lucy lacks elegance. The Steels, on the other hand, are obsessed with the Dashwoods. They want to be best friends. And since John is kind of on their side, Eleanor knows that he's going to try to get them to be together. It says, because of this, 
quote, that kind of intimacy must be submitted to, which consists of sitting an hour or two together in the same room almost every day. Have you ever had someone you dislike really try hard to be like your best friend and like you're a nice person. So you're like, I'll hang with you. And you're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poor Eleanor. She's too nice for her own good. She is. But also it did say here that John doesn't actually know what friendship means. So for him, sitting in the same room equals BFF. Which is why he always pays people to hang out at his house. Oh, poor baby. Additionally, he thinks that best friends need to know each other's business. So he tells the Steels all of the Dashwoods business. All of it. Such that Anne congratulates Eleanor on Marianne's impending marriage and wishes her good luck for herself soon. Though, quote, perhaps you may have a friend in the corner already. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. And then Eleanor, you know, Eleanor is not totally surprised by this because every time she's seen John, he's been like, eh? Mm?" And like giving her all these looks. And it says that every time they're at dinner, he brings up the letter F and it says, the letter F had been likewise invariably brought forward and found productive of such countless jokes that its character as the wittiest letter in the alphabet had long been established with Eleanor. So as uh, listeners might remember, the letter F is tied to Margaret's fuck up of saying that Eleanor was in love with a man whose name began with an F. I meant Eleanor, ru- I meant Mar- M- Margaret. <laughs> Third one. Margaret ruined this for everyone. <laughs> Listen, Margaret just brought it all out to the forefront, didn't she? She did. And if they didn't know, then none of this would happen and nobody would be sad. But <sighs> all right, we'll keep going because the listeners don't know yet necessarily. They might, but maybe not. They might. They probably do. So. The Steels hear about this letter F and they want to know his name. So John says it's Ferris. And Anne says, oh, your sister-in-law's brother? I know him very well. First of all, what? Then Lucy is like, we've only met him a few times at our uncle's. And when I was reading this, I thought, oh, she's a people pleaser like Mrs. Palmer, she just agrees with. She's like, oh, yeah, I know him. Mm-mm. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. So first, but who's the uncle? I want to know who's the uncle. Eleanor is thinking who's the uncle, but she doesn't ask. And for the first time ever, Mrs. Jennings does not say what the gossip is. Eleanor notes, though, that the tone in which Anne spoke of Eddie, Edward, seemed to imply that she doesn't like him. And that is the end of that chapter. What a cliffhanger. What could that possibly mean? (laughs) Then we come to chapter 22. Chapter 22, which in my notes has a lot of exclamation points and a lot of question marks after it. I have my Grogu for support. All right, Grogu, let's get us through this. This chapter is a doozy. Like I said, Marianne is not having it with the steels, so they gravitate towards Eleanor. And she soon discovers that... Lucy is clever, but generally she's ignorant and illiterate. And Eleanor feels bad for her because she's never been educated. But, quote, she saw with less tenderness of feeling the thorough want of delicacy, of rectitude, which means righteousness, and integrity of mind, which her attentions, her assiduities, which means her close attentions, her flatteries at the park betrayed. Basically, she sees that Lucy is fake. Oh, yes. Fake, 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 fake. Oh, yeah. Fake. And not just fake, 
kind of manipulative. Fake manipulative. She's like, oh, what a lovely house you have. Mm. Oh, God. Molly looks murderous because Lucy sucks. And when I was first reading this, I was like, why is she doing what she's doing right now? Is she that stupid? No, she is fake and manipulative and she knows exactly what she's doing and I hate her. We're going to have a really good conversation about Lucy Steele and the study questions. Oh, good. Um, Yeah, I think that it's really clear. You can kind of see it subtly even as she was just introduced. She was so charming to John Middleton and Lady Middleton that uh, she got a place to stay. Uh, Lady Middleton wasn't keen on her just showing up at the house. I'm going to be so kind to her children. Yeah. Yeah, because they never really explained how they came to be coming to their house. It said that they were in town and they met with two ladies. And I was like, who the fuck are these two ladies they're bringing back to the house? They're their cousins. But they weaseled their way in there. Yep. And specifically, uh, Anne does not have the uh, charm to do so, but Lucy does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Actually, so it says... One of the lines was that Eleanor is not here for a person who marries in sincerity with ignorance. And I would like to just, we've got Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and the the third of the trilogy, Insincerity and Ignorance, the Lost Austin novel. It's a spinoff about Lucy Steele. <laughs> yes. So uh, if you've got that written, let us know and we'll review it. No one writes anything about Lucy Steele. <laughs> Good, because she sucks. Yes, yeah, she sucks. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster, and together they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now, back to this episode. So one day... They're walking together, Eleanor and Lucy, and Lucy asks how well Eleanor knows Mrs. Ferrers, and Eleanor says she's never met her, trying not to give too much away because she has met her, but she doesn't want to be like, I think she's a bitch, right? I don't believe Eleanor's met 
Mrs. Ferris. Ever? Mm-mm. Never. Wow. All right, so she's being truthful here then. Then Lucy gets super weird and says she knows it's a weird question, but like, you know, maybe there are reasons, but I can't really say. I don't mean to be impertinent. And Eleanor is like, it's fine. Weird question, but let's move on. So they walk in silence for a little bit. But then you know this bitch, you know this person who's like, oh, I'm sorry I brought up that thing earlier, but let me talk about it some more. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all know her. We all fucking know her. Yeah. We all know a fucking Lucy Steele. We know her. She's doing it in such an innocent way that, like, on a first read, I've, like, kind of skimmed through. I read it once and then I skimmed through it a second time. On a second read, I was like, she she's manipulative. She's a calculating bitch. Oh, yes. So absolutely. She brings it up again. She's like, you know, I can't bear to have you think I'm impertinent, especially because your good opinion is so worth having. And then she says she knows she can trust Eleanor and she would just love her advice because she's in such an uncomfortable situation. But she doesn't since since Eleanor doesn't know Mrs. Ferrers, then it's, it's no use anyway. But uh, she wishes she could tell her what's going on. And Eleanor's like, I didn't even know that you were all at all connected with that family. So I'm quite surprised you're asking about her, actually, because. It doesn't make sense. She's just randomly asking about Mrs. Ferrers when she has no connection with the family. And Lucy's like, but of course you're surprised. But if I dared tell you everything, you'd understand why I'm asking. She's trying to taunt Eleanor into asking her. Yeah, she's like, don't you want to know why I'm asking about Mrs. Ferrers? Which she did not have to bring up. And then she uses it as an excuse later. (laughs) Then she says, Mrs. Ferrers is nothing to me now, but she may be very soon. And Eleanor is like, what? <laughs> like, are you acquainted with Robert Ferrers? Which at first I was like, who's Robert? But I guess that's the brother, Eddie's brother. Younger brother, yeah. And then she fell into the trap. And then and then Lucy is like, no, not Robert, his elder brother. Record scratch. Record scratch. She is acquainted with a Mr. Edward Ferrers. Edward Ferrers. And the quote I wanted to read is this one right here. What felt Eleanor at that moment? Astonishment that would have been as painful as it was strong had not an immediate disbelief of the assertion attended it. She turned towards Lucy in silent amazement, unable to divine the reason or object of such a declaration. And though her complexion varied, she stood firm in incredulity and felt no danger of an hysterical fit or a swoon. The way Jane Austen writes that moment, that immediate, like, disbelief combined with almost palpable nausea. Her stomach dropped. You can feel her stomach drop in those words. And then the, like, the no, 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 where it, like, drops into your stomach, and then your chest is, like, going because you don't want to believe it. And she's like, I'm not going to believe it. And she decides it's not true. Yes, she does. So so let's go on. Lucy goes on to say that it's been a huge secret and she wouldn't have said anything, but she knows she can depend on Eleanor's secrecy and she doesn't think Eddie will be mad because she knows that he has the highest opinion of her and thinks of her as a sister. Uh, I might cry. Uh, I have a lot of hormones going on right now and I... I want to hear adjectives. <laughs> what did I write? Well, what I wrote... What I wrote down is no. 
<laughs> I wrote, what the fuck? You had the same reaction as Eleanor. No. And then why is she saying this? Upon a second read, I see it's because she's a fucking asshole. There are other reasons to say it, but yeah. Yeah. And then sister, I hate her, is what my notes say. I just, I don't know what, it, what, what, how can I even describe how this feels? I just want to talk about how I was right about something. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about it. You in the last episode were like, I mean, crazy theory, but Edward's got a side chick. And then you kind of went on. Edward has a side chick. Edward has a side chick. It was just an offhanded comment that I made when you were like, why is Eddie being weird? And I was like, I don't know. I think he's depressed about not being able to marry Ellen. Like all of the usual reasons that I thought someone in a Jane Austen novel would feel sad. Eddie has a side chick. Eddie has a side chick who's poor and a bitch. Yes. And very, very pretty. Yes. Very pretty and manipulative. And she has him wrapped around her little finger. Mm-hmm. And he has her hair wrapped around his finger. Oh, let's get into that. Yeah. Well, we'll get there. It's, it's not yet. So first she says that he thinks of her as a sister. So she knows that he wouldn't be mad that he told her. Then Eleanor, you know, again, is like feeling this just complete dread of the present moment. Has this happened to you? Because this exact thing has happened to me. I I can physically feel the sensations. Like the the desperate urge to keep your cool and not, not give an inch to this person, but also that like plummeting heartbreak mm-hmm. when you figure out that you've either been lied to or you've misread the situation so appallingly that it's as if you are living in a fantasy. But has she misread? You're gonna cry. Has she misread the situation, or has she been lied to? I don't know. You know what? Because I couldn't picture Eddie lying to her. But you know who I can picture lying to her? Hugh Grant. <laughs> so that makes sense. Let's keep going. Yeah, we'll keep going. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna answer you either way on your inquiry. Okay. So. She asks then, after sitting in it for a moment, she asks if their engagement has been of long standing. Like, she's still trying to carry on the conversation as if her whole world has not just shattered. And we find out that they've been engaged for four years. And Eleanor says, four years? Four Four years. years. So do some math here. I told you last chapter how old Eddie is. 23. And how old's Lucy? I don't know. Also 23. And Eleanor's... 19. 19. Well, Eleanor and Eddie had, like, their connection made, like, last year. It's been a, it's been like six months. Is Eleanor the side chick? <gasps> and how old was Eddie when he made this connection? 19. 19. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I've never seen you this emotional about Jane Austen. I almost cried last night. I didn't know I was getting my period, but now it makes sense. But, like, (laughs) this is a lot because I've said before, like, oh, Jane's flipping the script on us. Like, oh, this isn't a Jane Austen novel. But this is so relatable. Yes. That's why I don't understand why people think, well, we'll get into it. I don't know why people think Eleanor Dashwood is so perfect. I see her as profoundly human here. Yeah, she's so relatable. But my main thought through all of this scene is that Lucy knows how Eleanor feels because they just had this conversation like two days ago where 
they were all joking about how Eleanor is in love with Edward Ferrers. She knows this, and now she's trying to play dumb. And also, why isn't Eleanor catching on to the fact that she's playing dumb? Because she knows. They just talked about it. Well, for one thing, you could think it's not clear whether or not Eleanor knows at this point in time. That Lucy knows? Well, no, that Lucy's toying with her. Right. It seems that way, but... Well, no, I don't think that Eleanor knows that that Lucy's toying with her. I just don't know why she doesn't know. Do you think maybe she does? I mean... I think she might. But also, that's what's so profoundly human about Eleanor is the capacity that she has to question herself. And in general, she trusts others. But in this part, she is very much like... This can't be true up until the last moment. She's like, it's not true. It's not true. Because her instincts were telling her so profoundly that she and Edward were in love. Yes. So basically, she just she just can't believe it. And she says, I didn't even know. Oh, my God. This part really broke my heart. She says, I did not know that you were even acquainted till the other day. Like, that's all she can come up with. In this moment, I am picturing Emma Thompson in Love Actually when she's, like, finding out about Alan Rickman. And then I remember... <laughs> And then I remembered that Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman were married in love, actually. And then I got sad about her and Colonel Brandon not ending up together again. Anyway, but <laughs> but that's what I'm picturing is like when Emma Thompson finds the necklace and she's like, oh, this is for me. And then when she gets the CD and she thought it was going to be the gold necklace, that heart drop. How wrong could she have been? So that's what I'm picturing here. The exquisite way in which Emma Thompson can portray repressed female pain. Ah, so good. So Lucy says they've known each other for many years now. He was under the care of her uncle, Mr. Pratt, for four years. For your clarity, teacher. Edward's teacher. Okay, that's what I was kind of getting. I was like, boarding school? College, kind of. This is all starting to make sense to me now. When... Lucy was embarrassed when her sister said that they knew him very well. Mm -hmm. She was like, no, only for a little bit at our uncle's, remember? And Eleanor starts getting a little flustered. She's losing her very carefully cultivated sense of composure. This is one example of where they slip into country slang. She says, me and my sister was often staying with my uncle. And I'm like, all right, yeah, so you're a little bit lower class. Then Lucy says, she, being so young at the time, was obviously unwilling to enter into the engagement without the approval of his mother, but because she was young and she loved him too much, she was a little bit less careful and she entered into the engagement anyway. Then Lucy says, quote, Though you do not know him so well as me, Miss Dashwood, you must have seen enough of him to be sensible he is very capable of making a woman sincerely attached to him. She knows how Eleanor feels. She does. How dare she? Yep. Eleanor says, she finally is like, you know, there must be some mistake. We must be thinking of two different Edwards. And Lucy's like, nope, this Edward with this mom whose sister-in-law is this person and blah, 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 blah. She says that she's never heard him mention Lucy. And Lucy's like, that's because it's a huge secret. I noticed at this point, I was like, is that why he was there for two weeks without telling them? It's not exactly why. Okay. Eleanor at this point sees that Lucy is definitely telling the truth. Lucy shows Eleanor a picture she carries around with her, and it's definitely him. And then she asks again that Eleanor not say anything. I wanted to read Eleanor's response to this because it is heartbreaking, devastating. I was going to go with iconic, but that works too. She says, you know what? I certainly did not seek your confidence, but you do me no more than justice in imagining that I may be depended on. 
Your secret is safe with me, but pardon me if I express some surprise at so unnecessary a communication. You must at least have felt that my being acquainted with it could not add to its safety. Yeah. Yeah. She brought it up out of the blue. So I think you're right. Eleanor kind of knows that she is intentionally making her sad. Yeah. Then Lucy says she knew that she could trust Eleanor and that's why she did it. Plus, she knew Eleanor would be curious after she asked about Mrs. Ferrers. But she literally only asked about Mrs. Ferrers so she could bring this up because she's a bitch. Oh, yes. She goes on to be like, I was in the greatest fright in the world the other day when Edward's name was mentioned by Sir John. His name was mentioned by Sir John when Sir John was saying that Eleanor is in love with him. Like, it's so obvious. Obvious. Ugh. She says she suffered much for Edward's sake, and then she starts to cry, and Eleanor does not feel bad for her, which I really liked for her. Then Lucy says it might be better to break it off, but she doesn't have the resolution for it. It would just make Edward too sad. And then she asks Eleanor what she should do, and Eleanor's like, that's for you to decide. Then Lucy asks if Eleanor thought him low-spirited when he was here. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is what we were talking about in that episode. And I was like, well, I don't know. He's sad. Eleanor says that he was. And Lucy says that he was so miserable to leave Longstaple where he had stayed for a fortnight before coming to Eleanor. That's that two weeks. Yep. And Eleanor thinks back and she's like, why didn't he tell us who he was hanging out with before he came to us? Molly's just bug-eyed. I'm just speechless at this point. My notes in the book I wrote, just the letter I. I just didn't know what to say. Yeah. Just poor Eleanor having to carry on this conversation. Then Lucy pulls out a letter from him saying he's still very sad. His handwriting isn't as neat as usual. And Eleanor sees that it is, in fact, his handwriting. And she can't doubt any longer that this is true. She's been trying up till the last minute. It said, quote, for a few moments, she was almost overcome. Her heart sunk within her and she could hardly stand. Human. Eleanor is so deeply human. She is. And she's trying so hard and she keeps going like a champ. And then Lucy tells her that, you know, well, she she carries around a picture of him. She gave him a lock of her hair set in a ring that he's been wearing. And that's what I was right about. I said, maybe it's someone else's hair. You did. It seemed too... Like, you can't tell if that's your hair, Eleanor. It's just in a, it's in a ring. Like, you can't be sure. And she was so sure. She just, like, assumed it was. And we're going to talk about that. But she basically was just like, yeah, that's my hair. How did he get my hair? And we accepted that as the reader. You accepted that as the reader. <laughs> I accepted that. But I didn't. Yeah. Because I said, maybe it's not her hair. I didn't think about it too hard, but I was like. Yeah, you did. And you can feel, I got the jolt as I listened to our episode today. I was like. <gasps> yeah. I When I was editing it, I was typing up the episode notes for it for the for the episode description. I was like. <gasps> okay. Whew. Then Lucy asks Eleanor if she noticed the ring. Like, she's just provoking her at this point. And Eleanor says she did, quote, with the composure of voice under which was concealed an emotion and distress beyond anything she had ever felt before. She was mortified, shocked, confounded. Which is, like, so, like, you know, Eleanor is so always the level-headed one. 
and she's just having all of these emotions and luckily they reach the cottage the steals depart and eleanor was then at liberty to think and be wretched mic drop end of volume the first fuck fuck yes so big bombshell on the story there blowing up all our expectations and it's time to go into the study questions i've got some good ones yes question number one What's the purpose of the Palmers in the story? Just to return to chapter 20 quickly. I think they're there to kind of show the taste thing, like the taste and the character things that I kind of brought up. They are very opposites. They are in an unhappy-ish marriage. One of them is very silly and the other one is very rude. And I feel like we get a lot of other silly rudeness from other characters but they are like very purely silly and rude is that what you mean well those are all great thoughts and one of the things i was going to say is that they they serve as comic relief in a lot of drama Mm -hmm. which is very necessary Mm -hmm. Uh, but i also think and you touched on this i think they show us uh the sort of perils of marriage without affection Mm -hmm. oh like yes which is what the bennett's did too exactly Mm -hmm. gotta get one of those snuck in there Mm -hmm. every once in a while Mm -hmm. All right, now to the juicy stuff. What are your thoughts on the Steele sisters compared to the Dashwood sisters? Well, first of all, they have no decorum. They are rude. They are vulgar. They are, they have no sense of civility, which is like, you know, I'm a 21st century gal. I don't have a sense of civility either, but they really don't. And they are conniving, or at least one of them is. I think Anne's just there. Yeah, but like the they play a nice foil to the Dashwoods, which is just they're both sets of young sisters. Mm-hmm. Anne's a little older, but whatever. The Steels are crass, uneducated, poor. The Dashwoods are sort of the fallen high high class people, and so they the Dashwoods are offered this foil in such an undesirable way. They're offered these really unpleasant dark side of the coin sisters to their light side of the coin. Yeah, I'm kind of picturing like this isn't what happens, but the moment when Lady Middleton and John leave them alone in a room together, I'm kind of picturing like Lucy being like, oh, and then smile dropping off her face and like glaring at them, even though that's not what happens. That's what's happening in her mind. She's like on the attack. She's like, hmm. And then you see in this scene, the two of them, the two sets of sisters sitting across from each other and just you can see their oppositeness. Oh, yes. Yeah. And even even though Marianne has her moments of too much gander, there's like a marked difference in their place in the world versus the Steels. Yeah. Which brings us to Lucy Steele. And I have a lot to say about Lucy Steele already. What a character to be introduced to. Immediate thoughts. I know what they are. They're mostly just swear words, but go for it. I just can't believe her. I mean, what does she have against Eleanor? Why is she doing this? Is it because of jealousy? Like, she heard that Eleanor and Eddie had a thing and she was like, no, no, no. Gotta, yeah, crack the knuckles. Gotta get in there. Shut it down. But I'm gonna do it in a way that makes me seem innocent. Like, I don't know. Like, oh, yes, my love. (laughs) No, she is trying to protect her man. Yes, so... I'm just getting geared up here for a little economics of Jane economics Austen. Economics of dating Jane Austen. <laughs> so Lucy Steele is a fascinating character. She is so unlikable. Like, so unlikable. She is manipulative. She is cruel. 
she is fake. And it all comes to light in this chapter where we basically see her torture Eleanor in some of the best written takedowns in literary history from Jane Austen. And she is fascinating. She is so poor. And she is not well-read or well-educated like the Dashwood sisters. She is just pretty and charming. That is all she has. And she has this boy who's her boy. She's engaged. And in comes this beautiful, smart woman who maybe is poorer, but, you know, a sensible match enough for Edward. Even if she's not Edward Ferrer's approved by his family, like, she's real competition for Lucy. So Lucy takes a one look at her and immediately figures out how to neutralize her the way she neutralized John, neutralized Lady Middleton, and neutralized Mrs. Jennings. She's very smart and very self-preservative. She neutralizes her by making her think that she's asking for advice. Yeah, she also sees Eleanor as this kind, smart person with a lot of propriety who would steal herself when something like this was brought to her attention and would do the right thing if someone asked her to keep something a secret. Yeah. So immediately, immediately she neutralizes this threat in Eleanor by just playing on her incapacity to tell anybody this secret and making her question everything she thought happened between her and Edward beforehand. Yeah, I get what Lucy's doing. What I don't get is how, uh, I was going to say how Eleanor doesn't see it, but she does. We can see that she does, but she doesn't, she doesn't say, you know, that we have a thing like he's, honestly, he's playing us both. Do you know what Eleanor could use a little bit of here? What? Marianne. She could use a little bit of Mary. She could use a little bit (laughs) of sensibility. Yeah. 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 She could. She needs to stand up for herself. That's one thing. That's one thing is like Eleanor should be standing up for herself and being like, you know how I feel about him. On the other hand, Eddie is playing them both. Is he? That actually brings me to my next study. Okay, great. I segued without even knowing I segued. Yeah. So Edward. This is a huge plot twist from what we understood about Edward Ferris at this point in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Huge. Yeah. He's not, he is not that man, you don't think. But I want to talk about how this is consistent with his character and inconsistent. And I don't want to go too far into it because obviously there's a lot of book left. And Edward Ferris is still a character in this book. But tell me, tell me everything you're thinking right now about it. How is this consistent? How is this inconsistent? We it literally in the last episode about this book. We were talking about how he is so awkward and such a human disaster, just doesn't know what to do with himself. Like, he's like, we were talking, comparing him to Newt Scamander in the Fantastic Beasts movies, like just so unbearably uncomfortable. But he's not because suddenly we find out that he's one engaged like he has a love connection with this woman who has little to no substance I'm sorry Lucy don't be sorry you're right I feel like I'm being too harsh on her because like she has a love a quote love connection with this man and I don't want to be I don't want to be blaming her for like being the other woman I don't want to blame Eleanor for being the other woman but she is being absolutely terrible but I also want to put some blame on Eddie because he's the one who has led two women women to believe that he loves them, which is not, 
that's inconsistent with his character. That's not something that we would have thought him to do because we thought he was incapable of doing such things, not because he's nice, but because he's awkward. Yes. But he's not nice, apparently. I'm going to put this out here. First of all, awkward men can be terrible. To that's, true, that's, true, that's true. That's true. happens all the time. Yes, that's true. It happens all the time. And it's one of the common tropes you get where women are like, oh, he's sweet, shy, and awkward. And I'm like, hmm, he's shy and awkward. Don't count on sweet, necessarily. Right. So I'll put that out there first. Uh, two, I want to point out two things. And this is my way of talking about this without spoiling a lot here. So I'm just going to talk about two aspects of this. One is um, we've had a lot of discussion in this book already about first love and second love. <gasps> yeah. So the concept of a person being stuck between lovers is not actually something that's foreign in this book yet. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. As of now, like that's this is something that has come up multiple times. It has. And that's intentional, probably on Jane Austen's part. Yes, it has. I was not thinking that it was ever going to be about Eddie, though. I was like, Colonel Brandon is aged. He is 35. <laughs> He's had two loves. Uh, yes. But yes, I was thinking that Eddie was like the simple one because I think that I was trying to place this into Pride and Prejudice context. And I was like, Colonel Brandon and Darcy. And he's, he's the, Bingley. the Bingley. He's not the Bingley. He's not Bingley. He's not. He's his own thing. He's not Bingley. They're both their own. He's his own thing. They're all their own thing. They are both. Yes. And then the second one, and I think this is consistent, and I think this is something very subtle, and maybe this is a hot take. We had had many conversations about Edward's discomfort with his class. Edward's discomfort with his place and the burden placed on him in society. To me, it's perfectly consistent with his character that he would find some love (sighs) in a connection at a young age with a girl who was the opposite of that. (laughs) Oh my God, you're flailing. I'm flailing because you said you, because, 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 oh my God, I'm going to lose it because I'm too excited. Okay. Because you said he's, uncomfortable with his class and he said that he feels there was a comment that he made about feeling uncomfortable with high society and he'd much rather be with low society and I said is he calling them low society but no he meant low society one (laughs) two uh you him what was it what was it that he fell in love with this girl when he was 19 and like, is it possible that he also has feelings for Eleanor and isn't just being a jerk? Like, whomst? Whomst? Ah, I don't know what to feel. I like don't want to feel bad. I don't feel bad for him. I feel really angry at him. And if I was Eleanor right now, I would feel angry at him. I would also really feel angry at him if, if I was Lucy, to be honest, even though like she sucks, like she capital S sucks. I feel bad for her, too, because she just overheard at dinner that this girl has a thing with Eddie. And she's like, excuse me. And she was like, let me swoop in there. And then she was a bitch. But like, she's valid in doing so, honestly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How ridiculous is it for Eleanor to have just assumed that he had her hair randomly? Absolutely absurd. It's thinking back it's on it. absurd. It doesn't make any sense. Like, we shouldn't have given any weight to that. Sometimes. Yeah. We tend to think Eleanor is so rational and she is so, like, logical in all these things. But she looked at his finger, saw hair on his finger and was like, how did he get a piece of my hair? No. But also like she, on the one hand, yes, it's crazy. On the other hand, she was like, my person is wearing someone's hair around their ring. It's not that far off to think that it might be hers because she's his person, she thought. But also listening back to that episode, I was like, that's absurd. All right. Standby's funniest quote. Okay. I had a few options. 
I'm going to go with one that I didn't read yet. I read a few of them out loud already. And so all of those, you know, those were funny. I'm going to read the one that I haven't read out loud yet. So this is about the children. Lady Middleton says, John is in such spirits today, said she, on his taking Miss Steele's pocket handkerchief and throwing it out of the window. He is full of monkey tricks. And soon afterwards, on the second boys violently pinching one of the same lady's fingers, she fondly observed how playful William is. Great stuff. Fucking kids. Questions moving forward. I, I don't even know if I can formulate one. Everything is confusing to me right now. I mean, now that I know that, like, is Eddie the worst? I, I don't have any solidified questions at this point. I just want to keep reading. Okay. Who wins the chapters? Eleanor. I just want to give her a hug. Yes. I think she lost them, but she, she lost them. them. I, I get your point. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't know who would win them based on, like, who did the best. Hang on. Let's split it into two. I'm going to give Mrs. Palmer the first chunk because she's great. Uh, and also, I'm just ready for her to crack. And I'm going to give Eleanor the second half because I need to... She needs a win. All right. Great. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. All right. Listeners, that concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Molly, I would ask how you're feeling, but I can see it on your face. <laughs> for next episode, we're going to take a small break from Sense and Sensibility once again. I know, very tragic, but trust me, it's worth it because we are covering one of the most iconic and probably loosest adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, Bridget Jones' Diary. And we have a very special surprise guest coming on for that episode, so we hope you tune in and check that out. And the episode after that, so not the next coming episode, but the one after, we will return to Sense and Sensibility. So you just got to read chapters 23 through 25 to follow along with the book. So until next time, stay proper and find yourself someone who isn't going to randomly show up with a side chick. Amen. Yeah. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.